0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Drink, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. I have got with me my co hosts W.F. Twyman Jr., who goes by Wink, David Bernstein. And today we have our guest, Wilfred Riley. He is a political science professor at Kentucky State University. He's the author of the latest book called Taboo. And we're so excited. I'm so excited to be in this room of great thinkers, uh, but you know, thinking while we're drinking, what is everyone bringing to the table today? Wilfred, did you bring anything?
1: Well, right now I'm just drinking a Diet Coke, but I'm also going to drink <laughs> our Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Ale as um, the show goes on. So, shout out to our Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Ale. My buddy's bringing a six-pack of them over to my house. So I don't. Right now, I just have a pop.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we'll be we'll we'll be looking for that ale. <laughs> Wait. Do you have anything? Oh, I do. I'm I'm going uh, bland
2: today. I'm having water, which is good for you. Water put in my Yale cup, as you recall.
0: Yes. So, yes. Yep. And mm. David, I know you're heading out. Anything for you?
3: No, actually, in honor of our very special guest, I brought Kentucky bourbon, oh. uh, Woodford okay. Reserve, Kentucky bourbon. So, cheers. Cool.
1: Fine choice.
0: Well, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed about my choice. Um, I brought one, not one, but two watermelon white claws. Oh. <laughs> But my <laughs> my friends who have more discerning tastes um, look down their nose at my choice of malt beverage. And I know it's, uh, anyways, there we have it. That I got two That's of them, good. so, you know, because I'm excited wow. about this conversation. So with that said, um, we've got a lot of things to discuss with you, Wilfred. David, take it away.
3: Okay, so we are in a very precarious ideological moment. And I wonder if, if you would describe how you would portray that ideological moment. What is the ideological climate? Maybe you could also talk about it on both the left and the right and how you think the two are similar or dissimilar.
1: All right. I feel like we're in a time of attempted cultural revolution, and that's producing a pretty significant backlash. i think that to be a fair way to sum up both sides of it. So, I mean, obviously, one of the greatest moments in U.S. history, and I don't think that's extensively disputed on the left or at least the mainstream right, was the civil rights movement in the 1960s and, of course, before that anti-lynching legislation and so on. And many of the things that came out of that, I mean, the Civil Rights Act, voting rights for everyone, rights for women, something we often minimize as we talk back and forth, blacks, whites, Jewish Americans, you couldn't open up. A checking account as a woman without your husband's permission to i believe 1979 something like that so this came out of that 60s movement even the drug culture sexual revolution so we had this massive systemic change in our society uh private sector affirmative action and right now to a real extent the debate is about whether we should extend that still further um Beyond equal rights to, for example, a fully reparative structure of rights designed to compensate for harms that may have occurred in the past. Uh, The sociologist Ibram Kendi wants a department of equity where you would look almost by profession at whether every racial and regional group is proportionally represented and you would take legal steps to change that uh, if that's not the case. You know, critical race theory as perhaps a replacement bedrock of education, or critical theory more broadly in the schools, as versus what we have now, um, and a bunch of other things. I mean, there's a I don't I don't like the label defunding the police, but there's a there's a considerable debate right now about whether we should change the nature of law enforcement, uh, even the use of military force. So, without just rambling on, there's there's a massive conversation of right now about whether we need to go past the. Sort of baseline egalitarian idea of the civil rights movement to something else and that's producing a a pretty substantial backlash Um, Many people including me on a lot of points feel that much of what's argued by critical advocates Some of the people associated with the 1619 project for example doesn't seem to be factually accurate I mean the famous claim there was that the Revolutionary War was fought in large part to preserve slavery, which isn't true so this this is a debate that's going on in letters. I mean, you'll have, you know, John McWhorter and Dr. Kendi going back and forth, the articles and so on. And also at the extremes, there are a very large number of people that feel like this is absurd. Like we are training people in the country to hate the country. Um, and this, this tapers off to the alt-right and the fringes, where the idea is that there's an actual attempt to replace the traditional sort of white majority of the country. People use terms like genocide. I, I consider this nonsensical as well. But I mean, that's the debate that's currently going on. Do we need to extend the momentum of the civil rights movement to make massive changes in policing, education, law? And there's a considerable amount of resistance to this. To me, I think that in one sentence, the difference between the moment today and the civil rights era is that civil rights exist So, I mean, prior to 1954, you had Jim Crow racial segregation, at least in the American South. So in 1954, with Brown v. Board, we desegregated. We essentially, at least in education and the like, banned this by law. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act made virtually all open racial discrimination civilly, sometimes criminally illegal. Since 1967, we've had pro-minority affirmative action throughout much of the business world, academia as well. So the question is now, do we need to do something else? Do we need to assume that every disparity is the result of discrimination and change society? And I would personally say, no, there are obvious reasons for things like the police engaging more with young men, however, unpc PC that might be to say.
3: So we've seen a lot of this sort of concept creep where equity meant something at some point now means something different um, given Uh, Ibrahim X. Kendi's uh, reinterpretation of the word. Um, What do you tell an institution that has always struggled with the idea of equity, wants more equity, because equity sounds like a very benevolent idea, right? It's something that we all should stand for. What do you tell them about this particular definition of equity? What what could go wrong if we just simply try to get more proportional representation?
1: Well, I think that what could go wrong is that the quality of the institution could drop dramatically depending on the reasons for the failure of proportional representation in the first place. So, I mean, women aren't proportionally represented among Navy SEALs or NFL players, and there are very obvious reasons for that. At the same time, men, especially, I'm kind of, I kind of—I don't see any of the guys on the panel being an excellent child psychologist, no offense. I mean, there are fields where <laughs> men are dramatically <laughs> underrepresented. You don't want a bunch of you know big barking i q one o two dudes doing certain things you know, therapeutic counseling and so on. so <laughs> the, there are very often reasons, not that any of us happen to be big, barking, dumb guys. I'm just saying there are very often reasons for uh, underrepresentation by field. And ignoring those in favor of equity can often become nonsensical. A, a bigger issue here, I think, is the the differing use of words by the two sides. So racism to me, and I think to most people, would mean disliking most or all members of a particular race. Um, that's a very simplistic but pretty accurate way to put it, disliking people because of the race they are. Um, I, I don't think I'd have a bigot in my home for something like a dinner party. Someone said, I don't like blacks or whites. This, we need to stop this Hispanic immigration. That That's racism to most people. Um, what we're seeing now on much of the political left is an attempt to redefine the word racism to mean sort of any systemic entity that fails to produce exact proportional representation. So, again, when you get into uh, Ibram Kendi, Robin Dangelo, bell hooks, Andrew Hacker, a lot of the writers, many of whom are intelligent, enjoyable people on this side of the fence, they'll very openly say this. So the argument is that any disparity in performance between different groups can only be due to two things. One is genetic inferiority, which I don't think anyone in the serious conversation wants to touch on. And the other one is racism. However hard it might be to find, there has to be some systemic entrenched prejudice within the tests that has, you know, whites finishing ahead of blacks and in some years blacks ahead of Latinos. I mean, you know, so on down the line, like there, there must be some form of prejudice there. The reality is that it's sidelining a little bit, but the reality is that this isn't true. Um, People like Thomas Sowell uh, have pointed out for decades that there are important non raced variables that also vary between people of different races. So, I mean, the one that I always use to open speeches is that the most common age for a black man is 27 and the most common age for a white man is 58. Um, You can find that just by Googling modal average age for groups. So obviously, and the median's smaller than that, but it's still more than ten years. So obviously, if person A is say, fifteen years older than person B, he'll have had a considerable amount more time to work and to accumulate resources and to build a family and so on down the line. So when you look at anything from crime rates to who who performs most often as professional athletes to wealth held by families, this doesn't explain all of it, but you first have to note that these people are decades apart. And you move on from there to where people live, for example. Uh, Asians perform very well in this country, but Asian incomes are boosted by the fact that people of East Asian descent are concentrated in some of the coastal cities where you often find tech work, where you often find elite colleges. Um, The reverse is true for African-Americans. We're more likely to live in the South, the traditional black belt. So I I would speculate there aren't very many income differences at all between black and white people in rural Arkansas but we are we are more likely to live there. You have to look at test scores, obviously, if we're being blunt. So when you adjust for all these things, you find that many of the gaps that are attributed initially to racism or perhaps the genes by the fringe right simply vanish. They disappear almost entirely. We see this with men and women as well. I mean, the, the claim is that the gender pay gap, quote unquote, is something like 59 cents. If you adjust for very basic things like are men and women working? Are they working in the same field? Um, have they have the women, uh, the word I would use here is chosen, taken some time off to raise families in a way that men often don't. When you adjust for those things, you still see real sexism, which can't be excused, but the gaps two or 3%. So if you're looking, if you're claiming that any system that produces these kind of 2% disparate impacts is racist. You're using a very, or if you're claiming that the initial 50% gap or 40% gap must be due to racism, you're using a very different definition of racism from what almost anyone is in the normal conversation. And I, I think the same thing is true with equity. Most people, equity is used so often because it's a very easy word to confuse with equality. So I think most people, when you think of equity, think, okay, do all the black, white, Latino kids, if you're talking about varsity tryouts or a test for the gifted program, do they start on the same line? That's not generally what equity means. Equity would be more like, do they all finish at the same point? Hmm. So when people say there there's not enough equity in the admissions program for Harvard University, they don't mean, you know, let's say Yale, a better institution. Okay. <laughs> Although, uh, anyway, I'm not gonna get, you know, going to get into I went to the University of Illinois, so like criticizing the Ivies from like that notch below is, is an old game among anyone in business. But anyway, so, but leaving all that aside, I mean, I, I don't think anyone feels that Yale University's admissions office is discriminating against, say, black women, i.e. there's a desire so. to keep out black women. There are no special programs for black women, something like that. I'd say rather the reverse. And so with anyone who has any experience with higher education, um, what, what's meant by a lack of equity is that there aren't as many black women proportionally as there are Asian men. So an equity program, if it's implemented, would mean we're going to push that number past seven percent or whatever it should be by any means. And you can support that or you can oppose that. But that that's very, very different from giving everyone an equal chance. And this, this actually sums up. Um, In better, shorter form, what I said earlier, we've been giving everyone, once you adjust for social class, a roughly equal chance since maybe the 1970s. That's not what's being asked now. What's being asked for now is enough of a boost to each underrepresented group to make everything equal in terms of results. There are some ethical arguments for this if you've read Randall Robinson and so on, but I, I oppose it. I think that there would be very practical negative effects. Um, Wilfred,
2: you've done a wonderful job of capturing the nuance and complexity of the different factors at work. In a, you know, singing to the choir here. Uh, my question is, why is there resistance to that plain nuance and complexity that you've so eloquently uh, pointed out to us? Why is there resistance to that?
1: A good question. I mean, the short, glib answer is priests don't like it if you say God's not real. I mean, so there's a there's a long running and I'll I'll make the challenge again. Myself and Coleman Hughes, a young academic who worked for the Manhattan Institute and I was doing his own thing, have both issued a challenge to uh, Ibram Kendi to come have a friendly debate. (laughs) We're both black men. This would be one of the historically black colleges. So I'll issue the challenge again. I believe it was Bob Woodson that put up ten thousand dollars for the winner's charity. So if Dr. Kendi would like to come meet and have this conversation, have this debate, we're both very willing um, I, I can't promise a specified amount of money on the table by this point, but I'm doing okay. Right. Um, but every time I've, I've issued this challenge or someone like Coleman has or Glenn Lowry has, I mean, very serious people and Glenn Lowry is, teaches in an Ivy, well-known academic. Right, right. Um, the There's been an immediate rejection. It's been, Dr. Kendi didn't say this, but it's been accompanied by statements like debate is the white man's tool, this sort of nonsense. And I think that, The basic question of whether, for example, disparities are always due to discrimination has been answered. No, they're not. Um, Eidos black folks can make a specific claim against this country on some grounds, but there are massive gaps between groups of every kind. I mean, if you look at U.S. incomes, uh, demographic incomes, this is on Wikipedia, it's on Britannica, the gap between the lowest and highest performing white group is around 500%. I believe the top white group is Ashkenazi Jews or Australian immigrants, and the bottom groups would be, without many mockery, but Appalachians, Cajuns, that kind of thing. So you're talking about the difference between maybe a $29,000 income and $150,000. It's very difficult to attribute that to racism or to say that Jews haven't suffered in the past or something like that. So this point itself isn't up for debate, but if you wrote a best-selling book with a title like disparities equal discrimination or some such, you're probably not going to want to argue with the smart academic guy who's going to pull up all of the Cajun data. So in general, uh, crits very often don't debate. When they do, it's sort of broad stuff. America has evil in its past that no sure, one disagrees right. with. But yeah, I think the short answer is if you have a core set of ideas, you really love them, you don't necessarily want to argue about them and have them proven wrong.
3: I just asked one one more question about this and I'll let turn it over to Wink. Um, so, One one possible explanation for why we have critical social justice and critical race theory are so insistent on their own truthfulness and their own inviability is that they're trying to crowd out other alternative arguments. And one of those alternative arguments is the role that culture plays in explaining disparities among people. By the way, it could be disparities among countries, too, for example. Um, And... um, and it's, it, and, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I think that culture is extremely important in explaining why different groups of people behave, behave differently. I mean, by definition, it explains why, who we are and why we behave differently. But I also understand the reluctance to give it too much a voice because in the wrong hands, it's an, it's an argument that can easily be turned into sort of a racist endeavor. You know, your, your culture is inferior to my culture. And, and so I understand why we're protective of it, but at the same time, I know it speaks the truth. How do you think of that? How do you balance out those, those, if you have them, dueling sensibilities as I do?
1: Well, I mean, I think as you know, an adult gentleman you know, said in a somewhat mocking tone but did seriously, you do have to be polite. Um, there are things that people are discreet about in public forums, but still the truth is the truth. You know, the old line is the truth well out. You can't not say things that are true because what you do is wind up with an underground samizda conversation where everyone secretly says the things that they know to be true. I mean... This is true over the years. I mean, it used to, without getting into a whole sideline here, I mean, it used to be considered kind of perverse and neurotic to say that women had orgasms. And there was all sort of response to this. I mean, from perfectly normal women being institutionalized to this underground of dirty French romance novels that went on for 100 years. Because the reality just was what it was. I mean, people could say whatever they wanted to in public, but people enjoy sexuality and so on down the line. And that never really changed. The percentage of people that were unfaithful in marriages was probably higher then than it was now. So it's the same thing with this. I mean, we can pretend that every gap between groups is due to some kind of weird form of racism. But and again, there are specific groups, not all of whom, if you look at Appalachia, are minorities that have been obviously disadvantaged by the conflicts of the past in this country. I mean, if you've ever gone to an Indian reservation, that's a tends on average to be a fairly depressing place. You know, great people and the powwows and big events are fun. But day to day life on like the Crow Reservation in Montana is not exciting. I mean, so Native American Indians, even ahead of African Americans, Jewish Americans, the people that more often talk about this, have a pretty strong case against the country on some points. There's also a comeback, which is that the Native tribes began about half the wars and lost them. And that is traditionally the wage of defeat. But I think that we're we're moving past that sort of barbarism. So there, there's a case to be made by that population group. Black Americans, the same thing. I mean, obviously, in the South, there was a residential racial integration until the 60s or beyond in some cities. You know, I mentioned women. There are disadvantages in society that have to do with the impacts of the past. And I don't think anyone wants to distract from that. But there also is this bigger, more significant reality, I think, which is that you can gen- you can literally look at two or three specific variables in the case of an individual person. Um, aptitude test score, age, if you're looking at wealth, region where they choose to settle and live grit it's called in political science as silly as that might sound and let's throw in years of education you don't have to trust the system but you just get the sheepskin that is going to matter and you can use those five to predict almost anyone's income so it's foolish to ignore these things i mean when you look at black groups the same pattern i described for white groups is very prevalent one thing that's forgotten to a bizarre degree is that some of the most successful people in the country are african immigrants so i mean if you go to that same listing of groups by income. I mean, it's above the average for the country in the top 50. I'm not going to compare every white and black and Asian group, but you've got Nigerians, Ghanaians, I believe West Indians, South Africans, South Africans do include some whites, but they're also eighth out of all the groups. I mean, these groups are doing well. And Nigerians are the best educated group in the country. So there's obviously something that helps a black man from South Africa or Nigeria who might get here speaking an almost patois version of English or another language altogether, who's an immigrant to this country, become one of the wealthiest people at the mean average level in the country that black Americans could learn and benefit from as well. So I I don't see that there's any gain to minimizing things that are obviously true, you know, talk about them politely, mention the past as well. But most people at some level are aware of this, that how well you do on the tests and how hard you work and so on is going to determine a great deal of your life. And you look like a fool if you just deny you personally, but you look like a fool if you just deny that. If you say, well, no, there's some kind of hidden racism in math tests. And this is something people are arguing. The math SAT is culturally biased. We need to ban it. University of Washington just did. That's nonsensical. That's not going to close the math gap. It's just going to prevent people from seeing it.
2: Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, you know, one of the things I find fascinating is, even if you look within groups that are traditionally called Black Americans, there are such a wide range of experiences and perspectives and life stories. Um, I've often thought that uh, we do a disservice to the national discourse when we only think of Black Americans in terms of descendants of slaves, of slavery. There were many Blacks, as you well know, that were free Blacks before the Civil War. There were Black colleges in the 1850s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean there were black lawyers in the antebellum era. Uh, there were blacks who were making an epic institution at places like Spellman, Tuskegee, Morehouse, Howard in the dark days of Jim Crow. Why is it Wilford that we never see crits trumpet the likes of Mordecai Johnson or John Mercer Langston or Dean Kelly Miller or President John Hope of Morehouse. Wouldn't those be natural people to? trumpet if you really, really care about uplifting the black man.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would add Robert Smalls, Matt sure. Walker. I mean, yeah, all the giants. Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, no. And I, I think that most people from the black community, especially I've noticed friends from middle or upper middle class black families or from Southern black families. I mean, many black people are aware of these folks. And in a conversation among blacks, does not mean discussed? At some length. No excuses for these damn kids. You know, <laughs> now, remember when Dunbar was Dunbar. I mean, I my family is a well,
2: You should come to a Tuam and
1: family reunion just easy. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's all of this, obviously, this is widely known to most again, any normal citizen with a black buddy knows this. It's right. just one of those things you're not supposed to say. Just like taboo. Yeah, oh, can't talk about <laughs> it. You've got to stop. But no, I mean it just when you when you look at a lot of these things, like, is biological sex real? Like, is there a way to tell a male from a female? I mean, even keeping a PG, you, you think of about 15. I mean, the idea that this is something you're not supposed to talk about, it's a complicated, tricky subject. That's just a social taboo, as in, you know, in the, the Maori island states, you weren't supposed to walk up some hills. We all know the devil's not actually up there and someone's just protecting his coconut grove, but it's the rule. You just follow the rule most of the time as a taxpayer. You know, so the same thing with does IQ exist? The same thing with was there great black history? There, there's also very troubling black history, of course. I mean, So yes. you know, there, some people... Tom Soule talks about this in Black Rednecks and White Liberals, for example. But I mean, there were, I believe, six, 7,000 Black slave owners. This obviously doesn't implicate the majority of Blacks anymore That does the majority of Whites. But Native right. yeah. Good but, point. Uh, Native, Native American Indians were legendary slaveholders. I mean, the Cherokee, uh, per capita, I believe, had more slaves than Whites did. Uh, Jewish Americans are certainly implicated in the slave trade. And again, no, no anti-Semitism. Their Blacks and Natives had more slaves. But I mean, when you say something like, when you point this out, minorities owned X percent of the slaves, many people today would simply assume you're lying. It doesn't fit the narrative. It's not part of the story. Again, when you move past taboo and look empirically, there's not much debate about any of this. But why don't people talk about this sort of stuff, especially the good, especially the successes in our past? I think the answer is because it doesn't fit the narrative that's a cliche, but there's nothing a revolutionary hates more than a competent leader that wants to make moral changes to the system. That is this so
2: insightful.
1: Is like, that is so insightful. But I mean, that, That's why communists hated Roosevelt. We often think of him as a bit of a socialist leader, but the, the Russians weren't any big fans of FDR or JFK, mm-hmm. as I recall, recall my library, because the idea was that they were going to reform capitalism. The reality wasn't supposed to be, say, Kennedy letting Asians and blacks and Jews be capitalists, too. It was supposed (laughs) to be capitalism collapsing and becoming (laughs) communism. That was the goal. So it's kind of the same thing with this. I mean, if if black leaders were to point out, look, right now we're whatever it is, 12 percent behind in terms of average income. And there's certainly some white racism, but we could close that gap by probably 80%, probably two decades if we focused on boosting the test scores, fatherhood initiatives, that kind of thing. That wouldn't benefit someone whose actual goal is to replace much of the U.S. system with something very different. That wouldn't necessitate a department of equity. So I, I don't think revolutionaries are in the business of suggesting quick fixes to the system.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: It's so fascinating to me. I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia, well, outside Richmond. And I can remember as a child going to my grandmother's house. And she would always make sure to have copies of Black Enterprise magazine, Ebony magazine. And, 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 and I can't imagine in today's world, Crips making sure their kids have copies of Black Enterprise magazine around the uh, the coffee table. So it's just a different, there's such a, a difference, I think, Wilford, in generational divides within Black America. We tend to think of Black Americans in one as one collective, but it's so false. Even in my own family, I have a father who was born in the 1930s who never knew a white as a classmate in Virginia. I am of the age of the 1970s, the New South, desegregation in public schools. My daughter has never known a public school, only private schools, at best maybe two or three percent Black, now at Yale, And can you imagine the gap between the grandfather's experiences and the granddaughter? And I think we're not alone. I think that's true in many Black families, I think. And we don't talk about that because, as you say, it doesn't further the revolutionary imperative.
1: Yeah, I think, and I I will note, I haven't done the full post-institutional review board version of this. This has been through classes and that kind of thing. But I've actually had a pretty good number of people take the, the scale of privilege that was designed by, I believe, some kind of Ivy grad students and that led the BuzzFeed website for yep. weeks. You can find it just by Googling, check your privilege. Something like a half million people have taken it. I've had people take that, and I've actually been interested enough to look at what predicts the results, i.e., what are the things that are more likely to make you, quote-unquote, privileged. And what I find is that with everything else adjusted for, again, just as with women, there is that 2 or 3% effective raise. But there are a whole bunch of things that contribute to your privilege far more on average and assuming privilege is a serious concept. Right, Um, right. But number one is just social class. So if the difference between a black guy and a white guy with everything else said at the median is I believe it was 46 versus 49, the difference between a rich guy and a poor guy is about 80 to 12. I mean, the majority of privilege is just objectively social class. When Mm -hmm. you ask questions like, have you ever lost a fight to more than two people, I, have you been jumped? Have you ever gone to <laughs> bid hungry? I have actually, have you ever gone to bid hungry? Have you ever had an internship and it's one of those odd little tests of whether you're in the upper middle class? Yeah. Like you can't, in a regular working family, you can't just take a job for no money and work it for six months. So, I mean, if you ask those questions, again, the the impact of class is more than 10 times, let's say the impact of race. Mm-hmm. And then again, there's, there's the impact of gender, You know, when you ask questions, have you been the victim of domestic violence, that kind of thing. Uh, Although guys are guys are coming up on that one. The gap is closing. But I mean, it it just saw on down the line. Religion plays a role. Atheists take a fair amount of abuse, in particular in high school and early in college. I was surprised to see that region, urban, rural. Being from a small rural town is a big disadvantage no one ever talks about. When we talk about food deserts, I mean, when I go hunting or fishing in Kentucky, you'll go through cities. That are pleasant looking little places, but have two businesses in the whole city and the next actual grocery store, not the ever-present dollar general is two towns away. I mean, so that that is a source of disadvantage. Anyway, the point of all this is, yeah, there are a lot of things beyond race that affect how you're going to perceive life or how you're gonna deal with others during life. Someone can say that, you know, my focus is race, my focus is uplifting black people. There's nothing wrong with that. But even for that person, you have to realize that it would be just nonsensical to say that. You or I, for example, but Barack Obama, a whole bunch of black people are more disadvantaged than a 410 Appalachian grandmother in the Ozarks. That doesn't make any sense. And a lot of people often slide over to that, into it or very close to it. I believe The Onion recently ran a joking article headline, LeBron James pulls over to lecture white bum about privilege. (laughs) <laughs> but that's because that sort of thing happens so on so often. And for example, you know, top fifty college classes, the professor who has a tenured chair makes two hundred thousand a year is talking to some kid whose dad was a coal miner about the benefits of being white. Um, the short the short form is yes. Many things affect who you are and how you'll be seen and how much you'll enjoy life.
2: Is there a disconnect increasingly between the reality of the critical uh, movement? and the reality lived on the ground for most Americans. And if there is a disconnect, does that foretell the, uh, fall, the rise and fall of critical race theory?
1: Well, I think there, there actually is a very interesting question here. I feel that critical race theory is confined to one very specific sector of society, at least in terms of where it's taken seriously. And that sector tends to be the very urban kind of upper middle to upper class, college educated, mostly coastal, even in Chicago where people are a little hesitant about this sort of thing in the prep schools and so on. It's this one very small group of people. And I mean, when people talk about sort of the existence of a national elite, I mean, that that's a thing that obviously is real. I mean, when I and I joke about being at the lower end of the elite because, I, you know, I'm from Chicago and Louisville, not you know New York and Boston. But th- that that joke implies its existence. I mean, there's a single group of people from perhaps 200 universities, some of which, which actually includes some of the historically black colleges. We're talking about Howard and Morehouse. Right. But I mean, there's a group of people from less than 300 schools, maybe 20 cities, fairly common set of center left to center right policy perspectives that actually run the country. And very often people from Donald Trump to Louis Farrakhan will run into this buzzsaw and just be absolutely amazed. Who are these folks? You know, I never, I never met them where I grew up. It's, it's a thing that exists. And I think that that's where the left side of that is where CRT is taken seriously. And I will say, it's fun to make jokes about the elite or the demographic breakdowns in the USA, but there's actually some interesting social science here in that if you are a Harvard student who is obviously pretty high iq i'm sure fairly good looking by conventional standards and in five <laughs> gyms on campus they might be a little professionally disheveled but almost everyone is physically right. fit almost everyone has income many people are from that trust fund sector what are the things that could actually cause you to feel disadvantaged and it's a very short list that begins with race that would go into gender and that would then go into sexuality i think which is why at the elite colleges you have so much of this stuff um I'm a non-binary woman-identified person who also identifies as polysexual. I asked one of my young mentees, a guy named Monte Yet, what all this crap, what all this stuff means <laughs> once. I mean, so he said that his girlfriend, well, Let's uh, without going into all his personal details, he said that a close friend was, well, it was pan and polysexual. And I asked, how does, it, how does that just not mean bi? Which hasn't been a unique thing among high school or college women for quite a while, and his explanation was like, "Well, you got to understand, big bro, they're more than two genders and sexes. This means this means you're comfortable with all of them." And it was just it was all this sort of stuff. And I think that where you're identifying as, you know, a pan, polysexual, happily promiscuous, etc., like you're probably facing very few other struggles. Mm. Mm, I mean, good point. Good yeah. point. So at any good rate, point. that's that's where CRT has a big impact. When you start getting out into people of different social classes or people that have come here from, say, Israel or South Africa and actually experienced real racial and class social group conflict, this sort of thing, I, I think people take it much less seriously.
0: Mm. Well, so.
2: Jen, jump in. I, don't know what
1: oh, I, I was
0: just that. I was just <laughs> thinking, though, I'm, I'm thinking about you, Wink, because, you know, obviously you and I know each other quite well. Um, we get along
2: very well, as it's evident.
0: <laughs> We're working on a book together, Wilfred. Um, but, you know, we you said something about generations, and I think that we see, and I think you've also seen, um, and Wilfred, you said that, you know, there's only a small group of people who, you know, really buy into this ide- ideology, but it's a very loud group of people. And I think that, um, you know, even Wink and his family sees that those differences in ideology and how it's impressing upon um, his family. For me in particular, uh, where I've seen the tension the most in the loud voices and where it pertains to uh, our differences is in in the police story. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, my, my husband is in law enforcement. He has been for a long time. And when you hear stories like, let's say Michelle Obama recently just came out and said that she's worried about her daughters getting in the car every day. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what to say to something like that. You know, I mean, First of all, first of all, let's just talk about how the fact that you've got Secret Service for the rest of your life. But you know that aside, you you that's that's the, that kind of stuff is shocking to me. I mean, uh, you know, another story just out today: the Pennsylvania governor was talking about how um, you know everyone should be afraid of the police, and so you have this narrative that, uh, and you've written in your book very extensively. Uh, how false this narrative is. And yet we have governors, former, you know, first ladies talking about this. And it so even if it is among a small group of people, it's a very loud vocal group of people and it is affecting everyday life. It is affecting everyday life.
1: Oh yeah, the that's that's a, that actually is an excellent point to correct. Him. I mean, yeah, the nonsense the elite believes. I mean, this is just as with the comment about women earlier that led to a lot of people being institutionalized. Like the elite can believe crazy things that affect the rest of us. Yeah, no. So I I think that is valid. I think you're going to see. So I guess what I'm saying here, I don't see CRT or wokeness being a major culture penetrating threat to some extent. Um in the way that a foreign war requiring the drafting of men across groups or something like that might be, because I think a lot of people simply reject it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of the most hilarious conversations I've ever seen involve people trying to explain white privilege here in Appalachia. I mean, just sort of like, well, you mean it, and I don't mean to make fun of anyone's accent, but well, you mean it, so you're saying we have more money or there's less crime? What what exactly are the results of this privilege? And it's just really, really, really funny. And the majority of, like, working-class Caucasian schools in Appalachia are not going to adopt the CRT curriculum. Some of them, in fact, have been annoyed enough by the proposal of a CRT curriculum that they're working on a labor history curriculum, which Uh is something that's been almost totally forgotten, the integrated white, black, native, everything else struggle against kind of the boss men in the 1920s and 30s, which killed tens of thousands of people, probably without exaggerating, this region of the country, Red Robins and all that. But I mean, so I I do think that a lot of people, a lot of people view this as an elite regional conversation. A lot of people are going to reject it. But yeah, to the extent that it gets into, I I think the place of primary conflict will be a lot of just very mundane, middle, middle class suburbs, which to some extent, that is a large amount of the country, in some ways, the backbone of the country. I think that's where you're going to get a group of people that don't know what the modern hip version of these words like equity mean going up against people that are trying to say this feels a little off to me. And like those school boards are gonna gonna have some real conversations about this. So yeah, it's I don't I don't really have a penetrating point here. I, I think it's a problem. I think the, the how much of a problem it is is kind of limited in scope. Because so many Americans from you know the black elite to working class white guys to the cowboy culture out west are just gonna look at this once and reject it. Mm-hmm. I mean a lot of these ideas seem objectively nutty to most people. Like yeah, they're
0: going to go on I was going to say, you know, I was just going to interject to say, although today, literally today, they are voting on, or at least having a discussion, I don't know if voting is the right word, on whether or not to adopt um, object, uh, uh, objective math in California curriculum. <laughs>
1: Right As opposed to what though?
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the good question. But where? Um, well, two plus two equals five. Power to right. the people, right? Because getting, <laughs> because, yes, because getting the right answer
1: sixteen nineteen might be racist. Right.
0: But I mean, they're literally. I'm on. I'm on calls about this this whole week. Today is the day in California that they are. Or again, I might. It might not be voting. They're having at least a discussion, if not a vote, on whether to uh, adopt this new new curriculum and so what worries me is i i do agree with you because then you also see places like idaho going
3: screw this <laughs> you know like we're not oh, bringing way, this in two plus two equals five has never built a toaster That's <laughs> david I'm too much reality
2: david too much reality
3: a
1: very important point though I mean, when I talk seriously about philosophy, leaving aside, you know, the alties VCRT online debates, so if I was working on a paper or something like that, I actually would identify as a modernist, not pre or post. I think that we, with, you know, Einsteinian physics and modern mathematics and so on, I mean, we really did discover a substantial amount of truth. You know, perhaps these UFOs that I'm hearing about will, you know, tell us some some new secrets near future. But we really do know how to build things, how to build toasters that can do the equivalent of baking bread in 30 seconds and send spaceships to other planets and so on. So to some extent, that to me is the demonstrative evidence. We don't need to have all these nonsensical conversations. You just can point to the the stove that's making <laughs> the room 500 degrees and say, well, that works, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, it's. there really is an argument almost against objective reality when you get into some of this stuff like the arguments against math the argument that you know people with vaginas aren't necessarily female the argument that the i don't know you can call them races or not as you prefer but the human background characteristics being west african and so on almost don't exist they blend seamlessly into one another iq is not real and islam is the most peaceful of religions i mean there's a lot of this stuff that's just objectively crazy the real question is whether people will be cowed enough by it or unaware enough of what it is to allow the objective nonsense to prevail. And I guess actually I have a positive attitude here. I don't think so in the majority of states. This is this is like the mask mandate debates and so on that you're seeing right now. There's there's very much an attempt to insert sort of current elite culture into a bunch of places like Texas high school football practice, and people are just like, nah. Huh? You know that's that's where it stops. So hopefully there'll be a lot of that as we we see CRT trying to spread.
0: Hey, I love the optimism. I, I, I consider myself optimistic too. And every time I hear a, a, a story of optimism, though, I always it's always countered with a story. Like I said, I mean, you've got Michelle's Obamas. You uh, Michelle Obamas. You've got governors. Pushing for this stuff, you've got this going in through our school. I've got, I'm going to give you an example, though, going back to because a lot of my examples are on the uh, discussion of, of police and policing in America right now. But this is one a recent example of mine. So about oh, it was it was before Trump. It was Obama was still in office, and we had that uh, kill, shooting of several Dallas cops. It was about six years ago. You might n- remember what I'm talking about. Okay. Anyways, it was there was a seven or eight cops shot, and at that time, my my husband, being law enforcement, ended up putting out a blue line flag in support of, of 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 you know, his yeah. comrade, whatever. And we just ended up keeping it up for you know indefinitely. We have an American flag out. We cut that flag out. Didn't think much about it. But it became slowly more politicized as then Trump came into office. And so that was seen. And then you saw a lot of supporters using that flag. And so it became political when we originally put it out and had no, no such uh, connotation. So I live, in a, a, I live in Austin, Texas, which is a little blue bubble. And uh, I live in a, a, a very liberal neighborhood that's near the University of Texas. And we live in a historic district. And our house was chosen one year to be part of a historic homes tour. And so I told the people, you know, that's fine, but you know, our flag, knowing at this point the flag had take, taken on different meaning, I said, "Just so you know we you know those flags are there to stay." And they were like, oh, we don't care whatever. But sure enough, someone stopped by the home tour and said, "I don't feel safe <laughs> having you in my neighborhood."
2: That's hilarious.
0: That's the first thing. Second thing, then I this is years later, so that was a couple of years ago, years later though a friend of mine is part of this the home association. And she was telling me, she goes, we've been asked by this same person to apologize for having your home on the homes tour because you had the blue flag light out. And so it's like this this person, I don't know this person. I told the I said, I have a podcast. Invite her on. Like, let's have this conversation. I want to have this conversation. I want to hear your voice. But I mean, that's how much it, it is I've seen this infiltrate, you know, from Michelle Obama, Pennsylvania governors, our children, to everyday life where someone feels threatened because my husband's in, in in law enforcement and because of a flag, because of a flag. And let me jump in, if I
2: might, Jen, and I know an example from personal knowledge. Uh, there was a Blue Lives Matter rally or protest uh, in San Diego. <clears throat> And I won't mention names, but someone I know uh, was a babysitter for little kids, maybe 10 years old. And when they drove past the rally, uh, she said to the little kids, um, you know, those are white supremacists. And one of the parents, you know, tried to correct her and say, you know, you can't Engage in stereotypes. You can't caricature people, right? We don't know about individuals in that protest. And that led to a quite disharmonious evening in that household and ruptured feelings for a few days. So I just want to chime in with Jen's observation is that there are these differences of opinion. And how do people who are anti-dogmatic live in households and families where other members may be very dogmatic? It's an interesting question.
1: It is an interesting question. And yeah, I mean, so to clarify, to the extent that this kind of nonsense is out in public, is launching conversations, is causing fights in the burbs and so on, it is an unnecessary negative. Um, I think that one of my suggestions in terms of how to resolve conflict at this level is almost always just to present the truth. And I think this is a good example of a situation where this can be done. And I think that's why at the local level, people like James Lindsay or Catherine Borschenko are going to have pretty good success at blocking these district-wide CRT initiatives. One of the things that I find is that in a weird contrast to the 1980s perception of kind of fake news or bad science, leftists in America right now seem to believe a lot more nonsense than people on the right or on the center do. And it's measurable. Like the Skeptic Research Center recently did this large end study, something like a thousand people, where they asked people, how many unarmed black men do you think on an annual basis are killed by the police, unarmed black men?
2: What's the the, thousands, right?
1: It was the the average. So among people that identified as very liberal, just to say just regular leftists, the 35% of them thought the number was about 1,000. Um, another fifteen percent thought it was about ten thousand, and then seven percent thought it was more than that. I didn't break down the averages myself, but it would have had to be like four or five thousand brothers that they think are killed right. in a typical year. And if you go over to regular liberals, just mainstream Americans, the people that are complaining about blue lives matter flags, um, it was twenty six percent of them thought it was about a thousand, and then six percent thought it was ten thousand, and six percent thought it was more than that. So, and th- this goes on into a lot. Out of things. I mean, like Bill Maher had a great routine about this where he talked to his mostly liberal audience about COVID. And he said, well, I mean statistically about half of you think that if you get COVID, you have a 50% chance of going to the hospital if not dying. <laughs> um, in reality, your chance is like 1%. Like COVID's a serious disease, but the death rate for COVID is well under 1%. The hospitalization rate is like twice that. So I think that very often when you're talking to these people that are panicked, that have actually been watching just wall to wall MSNBC and CNN and listening to NPR and going to these neighbors meetings where you talk about how either the white supremacists or the urban riots can strike anywhere. Right. I mean, it's it's useful just to point out what the actual numbers are and say, you know, nah, bro, that, that's not true. That's not a thing that's going to happen. Um, but yes, to the extent that ordinary communities have to deal with this, it is problematic.
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the answers, I, 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 you know, Wink and I would probably just love to like have a, like, a, keep your book around with us and be like, here's some numbers. <laughs> Read this.
3: Here's
2: a, here's a number for you, Jen and Wilfred. I was curious on my walk this morning. I usually walk before our podcast. And I thought to myself, there are over 40 million Black Americans. Well, that means there are over 40 million different. Life stories, experiences, and perspectives. Um, and so I thought to myself, how long does it really take to understand someone, their story? Let's say an hour. If I don't if I spend an hour with Wilfred, as I am doing today, I can't get a good sense of what Wilfred's all about. So if you multiply an hour times over 40 million Black Americans, how long would it take a researcher to really understand? the black American experience, which is comprised of over 40 million black people. You would spend over 10 years of study before you were able to spend an hour with each individual black American. So that's why I think we are so vulnerable to caricatures and stereotypes. The human mind isn't capable of doing that kind of nuance and complexity. We might even have computer programs that can do that. So we latch upon, as you mentioned, Slogans, things are easy to get a handle on and to to interpret, and it makes our life easier. But the problem is, the easier the slogan goes down, the further distance you are from the aggregate reality of over 40 million Black Americans. And so that's why I think it's always important uh, to, if you can, never engage in slogans, ask a person to use another word, don't use privilege. What are you actually talking about? Never be an avatar for caricatures or stereotypes yourself in your personal life, and never choose the mask of a caricature for private gain and profit. I think if you can do those three things, you're closer towards living an authentic life. And as James Lindsay has told us, authenticity is like kryptonite to woke theory. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there there are definitely some excellent lines and ideas in there. Never be an avatar or caricature of yourself um, is right. an excellent. Uh, that's a, that ex- is an excellent philosophy of life, I think, for most people. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of this, a lot of this would apply not just to wokeness but to fanatical ideas uh, overall. Mm-hmm. I.e., when you respond, don't respond by saying, I view you as an enemy. You know, I hate everything that you're saying, logical or not. Ask them to define and clarify what it is that they're actually talking about. Right. Um, and I mean, definitely, I don't know if I'm the guy I'd always pick, but there are a huge number of elite social scientists and so on, thinkers, philosophers that you can cite as you do this from John McWhorter over to mm-hmm. Tom Soule over to right. people that actually research, you know, the biological differences between, say, men and women. Like there's a great deal of reality there. So if someone says, I think all whites have privilege, ask them, as you said, what privilege means. Do you mean that they have more money? Mm-hmm. Do you mean that they experience less crime or violence or that they have right. a lower rate of suicide or that they use drugs less often? Uh, I think and it's not a race, but I think whites are ahead of blacks in three of those five. You know, so it's it's just sort of what do you mean? Well, I mean that they can feel. No, but what what does that mean? And th- this is a good way to unpack. I actually once got a priest to start screaming profanities at me by just asking him questions like, what is sin? You know all, the, all this other stuff. What are you talking about? You know, well, there's certain things like abortion that are just bad. I don't even disagree with you, but isn't the greatest sin pride? Why don't we ban that? And at the end, it was just like, get out of here. I don't have time to argue <laughs> with a secular lawyer. You're souls to say, but I mean, it's much the same thing with the with the right. world stuff. What are you talking about? I think numbers play a big role there, and a lot of this is just instead of you know getting on your knees and giving the pledge or whatever just sort of each time you hear this stuff unpacking it logically i know i'm being a little repetitious here but like the michelle obama thing as i understand if you are a direct intimate of the president like you're the first lady or the first daughter you get secret service protection for most of your life so if someone said that you would just ask well wouldn't the two assassins in the next car be able to get out and stop this local traffic stop? No, obviously, that's not their only role, great, brave right. officers. And stuff. But like, don't you think the car full of Secret Service people would be able <laughs> to prevent that? That's Secret Service roll at all. But anyway, the, the point is, don't you think that this car full of federal officers could stop a local highway patrolman from giving you a ticket? And very, very often, the question is this open and this obvious, and I, I encourage people to ask it. And to the extent people are intimidated and don't, more and more nonsense becomes part of the everyday normal discourse. Yes. The, yeah. The reality is that a lot of this stuff just yeah. isn't true. Yeah.
0: But there is that intimidation because of course, you know, no one wants to be called um, you know, the ugly names in public spaces, like the Twitters and whatnot. And so people just be quiet, you know, they they, they shut down. But, you know, one of the things that I think you said earlier, and to bring it back almost to the, to the beginning, is we're using words differently. I mean, just the other day, I was having a conversation with a very good friend of mine who has a completely different worldview, but we're very deliberate in trying to maintain our friendship despite that. And I realized she was using the word racism differently than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we were fighting, uh, not really fighting, but you know, we were, we were disagreeing on something and it came up later that I was like, Oh, well, that's not what I'm like, where you, I still don't agree with you, but you were using a different word. And that's the same with equ- equity and equality that we talked about earlier too. I mean, people are equating those two things and they're two different things. And so part of it is just, we we're, we're, we're talking it across each other, not just because we have different ideologies, but because we actually have different language
2: there are about 30 slogan words out there nowadays. And I always tell Jen, why don't we put those slogan words aside and use the other 300,000 words in the English language, right? So for example, I don't use the word racism or racist because I just think it's imprecise and it was popularized for political purposes by Leon Trotsky. I prefer to use prejudice because that's what you really mean. That's what I mean. And I think when you do that, you are able to, more closely align your conversation with each other. So don't say racist, say prejudiced. Don't say privilege, say um, the the fruits and the abundance of your hard labor <laughs> <laughs> or ambition or whatever. You just but say I,
1: rich. For you most, can say rich. That's true. Privilege.
2: That's yeah. true. That's true. So I think was <laughs> someone I won't mention the name, but a very prominent commentator gave me such a great piece of advice. He said that whenever someone uh, tries to manipulate language to win an argument or to dominate you in a conversation, simply say, you know, I don't engage bullies. And yeah. I have found that that simple advice works wonders. I wrote a, a newspaper article, me three or four years ago about um, a dispute between me and my lovely daughter, who I love, but we are related to George Washington. And I, to me, that's a great big deal. To my daughter, this was something to almost be ashamed of. So we had a big fight in our household about whether or not we could put a picture of George Washington on the, on the wall. But in my article, I proudly professed my reverence and appreciation for George Washington uh, to my daughter's consternation. And there were only a few people who were aggressive or hostile, but I told each of them, sorry, I don't engage bullies. And that was it, click. <laughs> if If you keep your mind bully-free, then you let into your mind only those who are receptive to constructive conversation. And that's worked for me.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that you could almost break this down into kind of a logical or strategic framework when it comes to mm-hmm. talking about this and other issues. I mean... First, if you're in a serious debate-style conversation, ask people to define their terms. Yes. Most people, and that, that used to be something that is associated with, for example, high school debate. It's kind of silly to see people doing that at cocktail parties and so on, but it's an important first step Definitely. if you feel people might be acting in bad faith or if you're just using different terms. So when I say racist, I do still sometimes say racist or when I, any prejudice, anything of that kind, I'm not assuming that the person I'm talking to means any system that sometimes produces inequality so it's very important that if we're going to discuss whether something is racist we first clarify what's even meant by that and then second i guess the next step would be to look and see whether there are facts that back up each position so first what are you talking about second do the facts support it if you're arguing that appalachian whites are more privileged than black americans What's the average income for black Americans versus versus Appalachian whites? It turns out that if you're looking at two parent families, for example, I think we're twenty thousand dollars in the lead, which would seem a point of pride mm-hmm. for black people, but it would also seem to be something that indicates we need to help out, you know, that region of the country. We right. all we all right. share the land together. So that—that's that's point two, what do the facts say? And I guess point three, I, I agree with you. If someone says, well, you're just saying that because you're a Nazi. I mean, I don't really see much reason to continue the conversation. So yeah, just saying I don't engage with bullies or bigots or whatever term you choose to use, idiots, right. is a pretty good way of of getting out of that situation. On Twitter and similar social media, I just block people unless they're close friends of mine. Ah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, but if, if anyone comments and says something like, you're just a – predatory uncle Tom from the business world and let me tell you why I hate it's like why on earth would I listen to why you hate me I don't know you, Adam and Eve. So I, just, I immediately hit the block or the mute button and that's it that's the end of the conversation
2: and it's healthy it's good for you
0: well I've it's learned for- that from you Wink it's so funny Wilford we put you know Wink and I write together and you know every now and then we we put what we write you know out in the public space and every time we get something negative I you know I furiously text or email wink and he's like he 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 gets almost mad at me he's like stop telling me about bullies so yeah i I, I don't engage
2: bullies you gotta be zen (laughs) Uh, don't engage bullies (laughs) i don't engage (laughs) Uh, we we have to model good citizenship i think we have to model good civic discourse we have to be not to paraphrase a cliche but we have to in a sense um live our lives as if um, uh, we would want others to treat us. We we treat others as we want others to treat us and vice versa. We always have to try to take the larger view of things, I think. I think I wrote somewhere that the universal transcends everything. The tribal transcends nothing. And I think there's a lot to be said about that, uh, that too many people fall into the tribal trap of groupthink and herdthink and critical race theory because it's comforting, right? It takes less mental energy to just go along to get along. But I think for those few who can see when slogans are being used with imprecision, when there are those who can see that the world is larger than Black Americans. I mean, Black Americans only Half of 1% of the world's population. Think about that. Half of 1% of the world's population. And so you have family members, Wilford will appreciate this. You have family members who live for Jack and Jill and Alpha Kappa Alpha and Alpha Phi Alpha and Omega Psi Phi. That's all great and wonderful. But just remember that you're only (laughs) targeting your social life in half of 1% of the world's population. There's so much more out there to be discovered. I mean, so personally, I love learning about new people, new cultures. I I love learning about uh, Soviet writers, for example, who knew Soviet repression. I love learning about um, uh, Hong Kong uh, immigrants who came from nothing and acquired property in our country. I love learning about the Jewish American experience. Uh, that's just the way I am. I think it's a healthier way to be, quite frankly, if you live in a country which is composed of many people. Because if you descend into tribalism, I think the Balkans beckon. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, they're actually just, I guess there is one comment here. Uh, I was recently reading a book called The Washing of the Spears, which is about the war between the British and the Zulus. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about how both sides would just casually commit atrocities because they didn't uh, fully view the other as human. And the way the back and forth wave of atrocities stopped was that one of the generals, and I i don't mean to be, make some deep point here, but I don't even remember if it was a white or a black man. One of them just said, we need to stop doing this. And they took some prisoners and eventually let them go. And right. that was the response to them the next time. And this is this is something that comes to mind when you think about Israel and Palestine, for example. There's a natural human inclination to pick teams. And this goes well below the level of races and these other great right, groups. Right. I mean, there are many working class neighborhoods, white and black in Chicago, where you'd be beaten half to death if you walk <laughs> through wearing a green and yellow jersey with the word Packers on it. Right. The humans have that atavistic, trend of, and you should be, I'm <laughs> but like humans have that atavistic tribal reaction to a lot of things. And it's very, very natural to us to squat off by race, by country, by state, athletic team, high school, a bunch of other things. And in reality, you can only progress to real knowledge when you get past that sort of defending what your group says, you know, Mm -hmm. sure, baseball is racist sort of nonsense, to actually looking objectively and logically at whether what people are claiming is true. And what you're gonna find if you start doing that is that very often what you've believed, if you come from any real tradition, the black middle class, the Catholic church, feminism, it's often true, those aren't just garbage, but it's often false. It's false as often as it is true, and when you see that, when you realize that the total number of unarmed brothers killed in a typical year is ten, not fifteen thousand, you can't refuse that truth because you've been taught it has to be false. You have to accept it as true and adjust. So that is that is kind of the basis of development almost as a person.
2: Wow, wow! If only more Americans would heed those words. Only more Black Americans would heed those words.
0: All Americans, it, yeah. It,
2: yes, yes. We all could learn a lesson. Um,
0: well, I know that you've got a Kentucky bourbon ale with your name on it somewhere there. <laughs> <too>. So, uh, <laughs> wait, do you have any final questions for Wilfred before he lets
2: us Oh, go? Oh, I, I I don't. I just wanted to say this has been a real pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed this immensely. It's it's a real joy to always speak with um an intellectual who is open-minded and is willing to challenge uh, dogma, willing to uh, unearth and unpackage uh, hoax and taboos. That's great. That's much appreciated. And um, I'm just thrilled we had this chance to, uh, to talk and meet
1: with you. All right. Love seeing you guys too. And I'll be in touch to, to follow cool. email with a couple of questions and so on, but good. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of hold my drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week, different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line and join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.